I'm Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this episode, we will be talking a little bit about alienation. And we're going to be experimenting with a bit of a different format this time. Uh, where We're not going to be talking about any specific work or piece of media, but instead just going over some... Um, I suppose some basic sort of uh, socialist theory um, and some of the history behind it. Um, yeah, we've talked about it quite a bit in previous episodes, so we just wanted to kind of give an overview of the topic of alienation so people who haven't read all this stuff uh, have some idea what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And like, I think it's um, one of these ideas that I think like people are intimately familiar with because they've lived it. <laughs> but um, yeah. Not a lot of people don't really have the um, theoretical grounding or just even the vocab- vocabulary to uh, describe these sorts of things. Um, so the basic sort of idea of alienation, as described by Karl Marx, was this um, kind of estrangement of people from um, themselves and from their products and from their sort of society at large. Uh, and according to Marx, this was all the kind of product of uh, life in a hierarchical class society, and more specifically how the worker is subordinated and kind of turned into kind of turned into an object in a machine in his own right uh, and dehumanized by the process of um, capitalist production uh, but before we get to Carl our buddy Carl um, we're going to go back and talk a, bit, a little bit about Adam Smith and the ideas he contributed to um, uh, contributed to this uh, this idea um, so yeah Carl why don't you lead us off on on a bit of Smith Right. So Adam Smith was um, a moral philosopher. Uh, people think he was an economist often, but actually he was uh, employed as a moral philosopher. And uh, he was kind of dealing with the breakdown of feudal society and trying to make sense of what the new order was that was developing um, of this new market capitalist society. Of course, he didn't have the term capitalism. Even Marx didn't use the term capitalism. But uh, he did certainly understand that there was a new mercantile order that was coming about. And uh, one of the major ideas that he contributed was uh, an analysis of the division of labor. Um, And uh, he understood sort of what the productivity benefits of the division of labor were in terms of each person specializing in a particular kind of work and then that all contributing to a whole um, that was more productive than one person splitting up many different jobs amongst themselves. Right, yeah. And um, yeah, he, he puts the emphasis here on um, efficiency, that it is it is simply more efficient to divide up labor in such a way that uh, instead of having, say, um, a workshop with six carpenters turning out chairs. You have a workshop with the same six carpenters, except one of them focuses exclusively on producing the legs. One of them produces the seat pans. One of them produces the spindles for the back. One of them uh, assembles it. And then one of them, of course, supervises and directs the whole thing without really touching anything. Um, and this is more efficient. Right. Um, and, you know, d- demonstrably more efficient as well, right? Um, and uh, the... The sort of point here was that uh, Adam Smith wasn't really talking about factory work or an assembly line. Those things didn't exist yet. He was talking about, you know, artisans in a small workshop. Uh, But what he was able to do was to um, project that vision 
of efficiency out into the entire society. Um, and one of the ways he did this was by way of his famous metaphor of an invisible hand, right? Um, that not only would the market coordinate what people wanted to buy and sell and provide some kind of social order in the absence of a, a monarch ordering the society from the top down or, or the church providing canon law, um, it would also provide a better society in a sense because that metaphor of the one workshop could be um, mapped onto the whole society where everybody was doing a specialized task and producing to a, a much larger um, overall product uh, than they could if they had uh, been bound by sort of caste uh, laws um, about you know what they what kind of work they could do or were uh, focused exclusively on um, traditional uh, craft work or uh, peasant labor mm. yeah so this this new system is more um, more efficient and more adaptable um, is the kind of the idea behind the the, the invisible hand um, that it's a it's a sort of spontaneous self-organizing adaptable system that's able to respond to um, just changes in, in demand and desires. Um, like if, for whatever reason, there's no more demand for wooden chairs, then those um, artisans could uh, turn their attention to something else, like making boxes instead. Yeah, and that's that's one of the advantages. But um, Smith did actually recognize some disadvantages to the division of labor as well. Um, he was... He was not uh, a, a simply a booster of capitalism. He he did notice a number of problems with it that he outlined, uh, in, you know, as honestly as he could. Um, and one of these was that the division of labor would, you know, get people doing very monotonous work. That would make them kind of dull in their minds and dull in their characters because they were forced to do the same thing over and over and over again and that wouldn't provide them much in the way of uh personal development mm. and like to counteract that uh, smith uh, advocates for education as the the way of um alleviating that problem that like basically that like turning a handle all day or uh, drilling the same hole in the same piece of wood um We'll just turn the entire workforce into cretins. Um, and, and also regulation, state regulation to kind of limit the extent of the division of labor. Get some of the benefits, but also um, don't go overboard with it. Right? It's, re it's really interesting kind of uh, looking at this stuff that like um, this is the kind of frank assessment of both the upsides and downsides of this new system that was emerging that... Um, you just don't you just don't see anymore you know it's e even from mm. people who are inclined to quote adam smith and and um lean on him to to boost capitalism um yeah you you just don't get really get much of this kind of um honesty about about downsides of this this sort of thing like it it was now the downsides tend to simply be ignored instead of um ever really being uh, being addressed yeah, that was one of the reasons why Marx had a lot of respect for uh, Smith and Ricardo um, was because they did uh, outline these downsides um, as honestly as they could. Uh, so, yeah, following up on Adam Smith, we have uh, Hegel, uh, the famous German philosopher, 
who was similarly trying to think through the transition from a feudal society into a modern capitalist society. Uh, but, you know, being German, he did it in terms of abstract philosophy instead mm. of <laughs> economics, so yeah. to speak, right? Um, and uh, he was actually quite deeply influenced by Smith. Um, you might not notice it on the surface of the text because it reads so differently than Smith, but um, one of the things that he was arguing against was uh, the old caste system that was based on birth, right? So if, you're, if your father was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. Um, and that was kind of uh, very limiting to personal development. Um, but in a market system with a kind of invisible hand ordering things, um, you have a very different sort of arrangement where people have more freedom to choose their work and people are able to, um, share with each other, um, kind of free contributions to the overall well-being of society and its reproduction. Yeah. And this is the sort of, this is the idea of labor really being, being well-developed. Um, and the idea that, uh, I, I produce to meet your needs and you produce to meet my needs. And we all kind of go around in a circle producing for each other, which um, was, wasn't was it's an idea that wasn't particularly well developed before Hegel got to it. Um, right. He was one of the um, first to kind of articulate this, this really concrete idea of labor as a human activity that is done in order to meet needs. Yeah. As a kind of basis for society, right. Um, in a, in a very sort of um, positive way, right? Because in Aristotle, he recognizes that labor is the basis of society. However, he assumes that that implies that society should be based on slavery um, because there are people who work with their hands and then there are people who think. Um, and you need to have the people who work with their hands to support the people who do the thinking, such as Aristotle. Um, so <laughs> that idea very, is still very... with us, but, um, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's hidden behind <laughs> quite a few layers now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause I, I was just thinking like, wow, that, that, that just sounds so quaint and stupid. And then I thought, no, no, that's, that's actually still how people think, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there is very much an underclass that produces so that the, um, the elite CSS programmers can um, get on with their work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, what Hegel kind of did was to take this idea of labor as a positive thing that the individual can do and bring that into the core of philosophy, um, both as a kind of individual thing um, and also as like a social uh, a basis for society as a whole. Um, and the way that he reasoned that this whole thing could work together, because, you know, he read Smith, so he understood that there were downsides to this kind of system, uh, was to have the civil service regulate and order uh, this division of labor, right? Um, so that it would actually work rationally for everybody in the society. Everybody would contribute, everybody would get something back. And because of that, uh, Hegel thought that the civil service was a universal class. 
because they don't actually produce anything themselves, but they take in the substance of everything that is produced by everyone else in society and they return the universal order that the society needs. Um, so, you know, it's kind of strange to think about this combination of market liberalism with uh, bureaucracy. Um, I guess you kind of see it in the ethos of the Democratic Party, but um, for Hegel, this was kind of a natural combination because um, at that time, uh, we, it was in the wake of the French Revolution um, and Napoleon's armies had come through Germany and uh, they had introduced uh, some kinds of legal uh, changes, the Napoleonic Code changes in some parts of Germany um, that had gotten rid of the old medieval uh, legal order and had therefore introduced this kind of sort of universal idea of law. Um, and in the wake of Napoleon's armies, you had these bureaucrats who were supposed to organize things. And when the reaction came that got rid of uh, that new order and tried to roll back the clock to the old medieval times, it meant that the young people who had wanted to become bureaucrats or who had been bureaucrats, the young students who had been studying to do this, um, were out of work. Right. And so you had these young people who had studied, they'd read lots of new ideas, um, they were very, you know, intellectually bright, and they were very ambitious, and they've been denied their chance at a job. Mm. So you had this combination of liberalism and bureaucratic advancement at that time that came together um, and actually was a very powerful uh, social force. Um, in a way that may, might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but it did it did open up a kind of new ideal for society. But it sort of calls back to um, I think what we were talking about in the last episode with uh, Graeber and his article um, that the market and bureaucracy aren't exactly counter to each other either. That like there there is a sort of a very natural mixture of those two in. Um, I suppose, a kind of managerial, disciplinarian kind of an ideology. Um, right, right. And so you kind of see a very positive vision of that in um, in Hegel and, you know, to a lesser extent in, in Adam Smith. Right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting to but, see the roots of that, you know. Um, yeah. And actually, um, you know, I was mentioning that the Democratic Party kind of embodies some of this sort of ideology, but... Uh, a lot of American liberalism has its roots in Hegel. Um, so it's it's not uh, entirely surprising that there's a connection there. Uh, but anyway, um, so Hegel has this kind of beautiful idea about what liberal society could look like, a market capitalist society could look like. Um, but there's a problem that he hadn't really accounted for, um, and that is the problem of unemployment. So... You know, in, in his, his ideal vision, you have everybody contributing to the society and then the, the, the civil service is basically making a contribution by ensuring that everything is running smoothly. However, if you have people who are out of work and are out of work on a long term basis, which is a is a problem that was completely novel in human society, 
um, unemployment was not a thing that existed before capitalism. You have the kind of opposite of the universal class, right? These people who contribute nothing to the moral substance of the society. The rabble. They produce yeah. nothing, but they also contribute nothing. Mm. Whereas the civil service kind of takes in a little bit of everything and produces a little bit of everything. So it's it's like the opposite of the universal class, right? It's interesting to see this kind of like glaring gap in this, con this conception of the world. Um, and then to realize that like, it's still not been addressed, right? Like this, this problem is still not really uh, being thought about or being worked on in any significant way. Um, most people by now just sort of accept, um, oh, there's there's always it's just there's just the way things are. There's always unemployment, right? The so-called natural rate of unemployment is uh, accepted to be both high and real <laughs> right but that's also like transhistorically sort of um applied as well like you get this kind of idea that ever since primordial times there's always been uh, a sort of lumpen underclass of people who who laid about and did nothing and then i don't know it's, it's such a it's such a weird sort of conception um and and i mean that that is a thing that existed in many periods of time but the the thing was that it was a novelty to have people who had some kind of skill and were used to doing some kind of work, but then being put out of that work and having nothing to do. That was the novelty, right? Because the thing was, you, you come up with this division of labor, it increases the productivity of society, but it also um, opens up the possibility of people being unemployed. And... This meant that these people were alienated from society, right? And I, I think this is a really important point that some people talk about unemployment as though it's mainly about absolute poverty, right? That, you know, you, you, you don't have a, a roof over your head, you don't have something to eat. Well, that's often the case. But I think, you know, as somebody who has been unemployed in the past for a long time, um, about a year, the thing that really gets to you is feeling as though you are an outcast yeah. from society and that you aren't doing your part, that you're not contributing, that you don't have worth as a person because mm. you aren't contributing to society. And even that your your daily cycle doesn't match with anyone else's and um, you're kind of like, if you make friends with someone, they eventually sort of wonder why you're always available for to go to lunch in the middle of a town or, you know, or if you're, if you're kind of like, you never seem to be held down by a commitment to, to the clock in the way they are. And it kind of eventually comes out and all that kind of thing. Because like, yeah, I went through the same thing, unemployed for quite a while, um, on and off, you know, like I've done that precarious um, work sort of thing. And yeah, it's like having having a wage coming in and having money is not just about having this uh liquid asset with which you can buy things on the market like money is um that kind of that kind of the the employment and the money is is a power thing as well you know and it, it outlines your position in the hierarchy and like it's it's very clear that when you're uh unemployed in in this position again of like having having useful skills um and yet somehow being outside of the system um yeah it's it made very clear that you are outside of it yeah, so when Hegel talks about this stuff, you know, it's often, it feels kind of airy-fairy, as it can often be with his writing, but it really does speak to 
an actual problem, right? That you do feel like you're outside the moral community, that you're not contributing to the moral substance of the community, and people view you in that way, right? Um, and so this was a real problem that he became aware of and didn't really have a solution to. So that kind of brings us to Marx, right? Our um, boy Carl, yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't a direct student of Hegel, but he was a student of Hegel's student. And yeah. he, was a, he was a Hegelian to begin with. He was, yeah. And uh, he, he came in here and really, really laid down the law with this stuff. Um, his, it, like in, in general, when he approaches this stuff, he kind of um, outlines that the um, political economists and the kind of uh, philosophers that kind of came before had like started from what he saw as like false axioms and false premises. Like they, they had accepted private property and the division of, of labor as axiomatic and then gone from there. Whereas Marx wanted to really dig in beneath that and get to the relations and dynamics that under underlaid all of that stuff. And he kind of finds at the heart of it that there's these deeply entangled sort of ideas of private property and exchange relations uh, of alienation and money um, are all kind of like mutually entangled so that they, they kind of produce each other. There isn't like a there isn't a clean flow of causality between these ideas. Right. And I mean, so for Marx, the sort of textbook example of stupid bourgeois thinking was Robinson Crusoe, right? Um, that is a book that takes capitalist ideas about um, production and exchange and market society and valuation and all this kind of stuff as natural and like it's like oh what if this bourgeois person was transported to an alien environment and uh they had to reconstruct civilization around them right that's kind of the, pr the premise of robinson crusoe and this was an enormously popular book right this this it was, it was like you know everybody kind of had a copy of the bible and a copy of robinson crusoe <laughs> was the situation apparently at that time right so so Marx, you know, took aim at this idea. Um, and one of the things he did was to talk about sort of historical genesis of capitalism, like capitalism as a thing that did not exist and then it did exist. And for many um, bourgeois thinkers, you know, they, they had some notion that this was the case, that there was a time before a market society arose um, of course, like, you know, they, they could read their history. They could see, you know, the middle ages and stuff like that. But, uh, for them, it was that you had a society that was unnatural and then you reached the true natural society. But for Marx, it was more a question of, well, how did we get here and where are we going? Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things he did was to go and, uh, first establish an understanding of how you get from simple commodity production for like one person making stuff for themselves. How, how do you get from there to a market society uh, in which people are doing uh, monetary exchanges, right? Um, and this was a thing that he took from Ricardo to start with, but he developed it further. Um, and there's a few ways in which alienation kind of factored into that 
discussion, right? Um, the first was that uh, you, when you are making something for sale, even in your head before you make the thing, it's alienated from you because you have no concept of using it yourself. Yeah, right? it's like, um, yeah, if you're churning out hundreds of teapots per day, there's absolutely no way that you're thinking, oh, I really want to want to use this teapot, right? It's it's already been detached from you, and it's already a piece of a piece of your life has gone into, like even just in the sense of like a span of time has gone into manufacturing this object. But it is it is immediately pushed away from you, and it, it sails away into the rest of the world. Yeah, and if you if you can't sell it, then you're gonna trash it because you can't use it yourself. I have no use to fill up my entire house with teapots, right? <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> so that would be insane. <laughs> yeah, so um, that almost as if producing hundreds of teapots is kind of insane. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right, um. but I mean that's the point, right? Is that in a society of simple commodity production you would never think to even do that because <laughs> like, would you yeah why would you fill up your house with teapots i mean yeah but it's also like that um so that the the, the worker is alienated from his product um but also from the process itself that like so if 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 producing the thing it is alienated then the very act of producing it must be kind of producing alienation and so the, the worker is like and this this is something like Everyone listening to this will already be intimately familiar with this idea of like being alienated from the process of doing your work. Um, it's it's a process that's under this kind of regime of producing commodities for sale on the market. Like the process of doing that takes up a huge amount of your day, and yet it's outside of your life. It's it's external to your life as a human. Um, it's it's a, a grueling task that you put yourself through um, in order to. Um, be essentially permitted to live. <laughs> it's kind of how it how it pans out, you know. Right, and that was kind of what Smith was getting at with his sort of questioning of the value of the division of labor. Um, but Marx kind of takes this further because he thinks about exchange between individuals, and of course there is that alienation that's implied in making something that you don't really want yourself you're only producing it for the market which becomes this kind of generic uh person that you exchange things with right and at a certain level of exchange you go from uh you know a barter exchange to going to a monetary exchange and this is where money money takes on the form of that anonymous person that is the market that you are exchanging with right they it becomes this universal equivalent that stands in for everything else that is produced in the economy um, and that has a lot of social consequences um, in terms of what it means when you go through the cash nexus when you go through money to relate to everyone else in the society so if i am making a direct exchange with you as a person, if I'm producing teapots and you're producing hammers or something, and we go and exchange these things, we have a fairly clear understanding of what the labor was that went into that exchange, right? Um, we understand that <clears throat> we, we both worked to produce these respective things, 
and that we can we can see that in each other mm. and if um and if i see that like your your hands are burned with like what seems to be burns from a kiln i kind of understand that producing this commodity has harmed you in some way um yeah yeah, yeah. um or if i notice that like if I notice that all the trees, as far as anyone can see around your home, have all been chopped down and you're selling things made of wood, I know that the environment around you has been destroyed in order to produce the uh, little wooden uh, 19th century fidget spinners that uh, you're going to sell me. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but like the money, using money and kind of like uh, intermediating those things hides a lot of details. Like all the... All of the qualities of the object are boiled down to one number, a single number that determines what it's worth. And the human cost of production, the environmental cost, or any any other cost you could care to name, uh, are all obscured behind this uh, this number. Um, and it's not helped by the remoteness as well. That like you're 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 going to the market and buying something that could have come from anywhere. You know, it's um, yeah. You never, never quite know what's what's gone into it, um, and so yeah, the the, re the relations between people are obscured by this, right? And this is this is all made possible by the universality of money, right? The fact that we can have a world market is made possible because money can buy anything in particular, right? Um, and it it does stand in uh, against every single commodity you could possibly imagine. Um, and so kind of like ultimately, um, ultimately you kind of have this thing where as, as a worker, you're, you're alienated from the product you're making, you're alienated from the process of doing that. And you're kind of also alienated from the society at large or from the rest of the species, um, and turned into this atomized, uh, essentially an object in your own right. You know, you're, you're kind of, uh, this is the objectification of labor in that sense. Yes. Um, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a kind of general, uh, objectification right that that your your labor becomes abstract in a way um and you're you're only worthwhile insofar as you can provide a certain quantity of that yeah and Mar marx kind of articulates it as that like the um the worker having kind of put all of his life force into producing these things is then confronted by that product as an alien force and he finds himself in a kind of um like as as the worker is drained of energy the world of objects becomes strong and he's then the, the worker then must kind of like confront this world of objects which has grown more powerful than the world of people has yeah um and you know the quote that's often mentioned from the first chapter of capital is uh there there it is a de definite social relation between men that assumes in their eyes the fantastic form of a relation between things. So we don't relate to each other as producers um, and consumers, respectively. Uh, we only relate to each other as the teapot meeting the hammer in the market and those being reduced to a, um, a, a, a monetary ratio. Right. Yeah, and I think this this like um this accounts for a lot of people's dissatisfaction and sort of like alienation from just just contemporary life in general. Like it's um it is pretty hard to kind of walk around in a world of like kind of like people who behave like objects and objects that behave like people. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Where everything is blurred together and is kind of really 
kind of horrible mess when you kind of consider it. Or even like the, I think when 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 Marx says that like the the world of things becomes stronger, I think like it's it's in some cases actually literal in that we we create machines and. Uh, objects and processes which then end up absolutely dominating our lives like finance as a system that has been manufactured by human hands and yet has a life of its own um, that the, the life force that's drained out of people to create these things actually kind of literally gives the objects life of their own it's uh, like a toy story sort of thing almost <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I mean, people often say that the real protagonist of capital as a as a narrative is capital, right? That there is this inhuman thing that becomes progressively more and more powerful. In yeah, that, uh, in I, that I sometimes story. I sometimes wonder if like that's some of the appeal of like Lovecraftian horror in a way that like because I th I think I think on a subconscious level we're all acquainted with this idea of like a horrifying spectral presence that is everywhere at once and controls everything indirectly and that you have no way of confronting head on like you know finance as a sort of uh, otherworldly monster that sort of directs the course of human history in this very alien way that like and like you, you see it even in in our politics and our just our general sort of social socio-political kind of life that like there's this constant deference to these things and objects that have been created. Like, it's like, oh, well, you know, we, we could, you know, we, we would love to solve this problem, but like the objects would be harmed by doing that, <laughs> you know? Right. Like, the, the mark, it, it would be like that. It's like that episode of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of South Park that was about the financial crisis where they were sort of making fun of the idea of the market as a person or as some kind of personified divinity that people could could upset right um the way we reason about the market as though it is one thing and as though it has sort of uh emotions or a mood that could be upset by our bad actions right um we kind of uh deify the market and in in a sense that is uh that's exactly what Marx meant by the fetishism of commodities. He didn't mean fetishism as in like kinky shit. He meant uh, fetishism as in a fetish, as in a religious symbol. Um, yeah, fetish yeah. in the sense of being a little little wooden statue of some uh, divine thing that you carry around, um, which isn't isn't a isn't a term that's used very much anymore. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But he took it from anthropology of his time, right? Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, so as, as we've kind of been saying, um, you know, in, in a sense for Marx, you, you can see the invisible hand that Smith came up with as a bad thing, mm. right? Because we have this fantastic relation between things that we start to think about the world, uh, in terms of, um, the invisible hand is this kind of strange, fantastical, creature uh that we imagine in our heads right um it is the market quote unquote in you know in capital letters right um so yes it provides a kind of order to things but there's many problems that come along with that right uh in terms of alienation as well as you know in terms of financial crisis and that kind of thing 
but um, when you really boil it down, you get to the point that in capitalism, labor is indirectly social uh, because every laborer is related to the other through the division of labor by the market. Um, so as we've been saying, there's that veil of money that is obscuring the relationship between each producer. Yeah. And um, it's sort of like, it points in the direction of what a solution to all this might be um, to kind of like, uh, we're a socialist podcast. We, we're going to try to like wrap up each episode on a sort of positive note, gesturing in the direction of where a future socialism might go. And I think if you're if we're going to take on this problem of alienation and we're going to counter it with disalienation, we're kind of going to need to get rid of a lot of these mediating layers and these indirections in how we produce and how we meet needs. Um, we'll need to become much more directly social. Yeah, yeah. And th this is the sort of promise of socialism that we can assume a direct uh, relationship to each other as producers and consumers um, and that we can think honestly about how we relate to each other because that is the case. Um, if we don't think about our relation to each other in terms of producing for the market um, but instead of producing for each other as human beings... Uh, then we can start to think about these issues in qualitative terms instead of simply quantitative terms, right? Right. So that, like, when we're assessing any given object or um, service or a good that might meet a need, we'll take into account not just its cost, but um, what the human impact of its production was, what the environmental impact, um, you know, any any sort of impact you could name, any any factor that could go into it, which is currently being obscured. Um, it's like the, everyone's sort of familiar with this, right? Where like we 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 consume uh, phones and laptops and shit that are like uh, they contain rare earth minerals that are acquired under kind of sketchy uh, circumstances, you know. And um, to see this this stuff kind of show shines through a little bit in how. Um, People on the internet have a sort of fascination with these uh, viral images in which you've got like a photo of like a shirt or something, but the lapel or the label has, uh, please help me, they keep me in a dark room all day and beat me, sewn into it. You know, we're like, the right. person who is sewing the shirt has broken through the veil and yes. reached out to tell you about the conditions under which they live, which are, which are usually obscured but under very certain circumstances can be broken, you know? Um, and that's that's kind of a, a taster of all the sort of stuff we'll need to take into account going forward. Because, like, um, even even if you're not swayed for some reason by those sorts of, like, you know, human suffering, we've, we've still got this environmental crisis bearing down on us. Um, and the theme there is that, like, we cannot afford to keep these externalities external, right? Because like that, that's been the, the mode of operation so far is to like externalize all these costs, exter externalize the environmental cost, externalize the human cost, and simply not take it into account at all when pricing things. That's got to come to an end, you know? Um, we've yeah, got to bring all this stuff back in <laughs> if we're going to survive <laughs> at all. Right, right. And... You know, what socialism offers, in a sense, is beyond simply internalizing external costs. It is 
being like because the whole thing about internalizing external costs into the market into market price is that it still perpetuates the fetishism of commodities in a sense right because the consumer the consumer still has really no understanding of how those costs were internalized um and yeah, it, it has that kind of mediation to it that that still has some negative consequences. But if we want to think about um, the kinds of ways that we value things in a democratic and sort of deliberative way, then we can actually debate what our society invests in and how we go about things um, in a qualitative sense where we actually think about, well, what is this? What does this look like? How does it feel? What does it um, mean to us? Instead of simply saying, oh, well, we need to have carbon credits or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the other sort of angle on disalienation and that like, if we do that, we can kind of deliberately and collectively agree on what our values are and disalienate ourselves from each other and from the kind of social organization whether that's a state or whatever you want to call it a you know workers councils etc um but that you know we can actually be empowered as people to deliberately choose what our kind of pattern of life is right and uh so there is this kind of objection that comes up you know to this this line of argument that and it's particularly uh, powerful, I think, since the '90s. Uh, this 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 line of thinking uh, about sophisticated consumers, um, where consumers function as aesthetic judges in society, um, and this was an idea that actually Hayek was a big fan of. That you know, there's this this thought in a market society that reduces everything to quantity, you could have a degeneration into just pr- 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 uh, producing the cheapest crap uh, ev- you possibly could. And everybody's just like shoveling empty calories into their mouths. And it's this, you know, kind of Wally-esque hellscape, right? Um, or, you know, just these, these consumer dystopias, right? That that everything's reduced to the lowest qu- common denominator and there's no appreciation of beauty because everyone's just trying to maximize um, utility per unit, right? For the lowest possible cost. Um, and so a counterpoint to that, which is brought up by some uh, defenders of capitalism is that no 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 we have sophisticated consumers now and these people we judge commodities in aesthetic terms we're discerning uh and so we impose aesthetic norms qualitative norms on the commodities we purchase and you know um this is this is kind of like well no i don't just simply buy uh i, I won't buy a mcdonald's hamburger i must i must go to the farm to table uh, hamburger store in order to have my hamburger um, and so there's it's it's beautiful and, and it's in a beautiful space and 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 you know the, the the sort of conditions of production are taken into account but there's obviously issues with this right yeah it, it's, it's still a commodity relation right like it's still it's there's still that obscuring factor um, you can't exactly trust that the farm to table 
uh, option is actually farm to table, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's often the case that things that are very beautiful, such as, you know, say a new iPhone, are produced under conditions that are decidedly not beautiful, uh -huh. <laughs> such yeah. as Foxconn workers killing themselves from overwork, right? Yeah, so th this is a fairly empty idea, really, the um, the sophisticated consumers and the... Um... Yeah, because it, it, it still cannot account for, really account for the problems of the production process or the problems of sourcing um, or the problems of environmental impact. All it can do is create a kind of social order where the richest people are able to um, establish certain beauty norms for the rest of society. Right. Um, and, but even, even at that, like, it's like the having the, um, the slightly better option doesn't get rid of the lower one right like it's like the 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 sophisticated consumers are only ever going to be a vanishing minority of the actual population right like and it's there isn't really much comfort to be taken in that kind of thing of like oh i'm gonna get grass-fed beef for x dollars per pound and you know literally everyone else is still gonna have to subsist on the uh, the lower quality stuff like it doesn't it's it's such a non-solution that it's kind of hard it, to it is a non-solution it, it's very irrational um and it it only it only feels good to people who are on the the sort of judging and establishing side of things i.e the rich right the bougie um, end of the spectrum yeah uh, yeah <laughs> because you know there there is a sort of um self-satisfaction in defining the quality of your consumption as opposed to the hoi polloi, right? Yeah. Um, like, <laughs> oh, well, you know, mm. my craft beer, blah, 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 or, you know, whatever. It, it's, it's, and people love to talk about this stuff endlessly. And, you know, actually, like, class distinction can have enormous aesthetic impacts. Um, you know, one example I like to point out is uh, brutalist architecture. Um, when brutalist architecture was the primary mode of architectural design for designing um, social housing or council flats or whatever, um, it was derided as this kind of like monstrous outgrowth <laughs> of, of the machine age and the degeneration of the individual mind and beauty and everything. But then... Once those council flats all got privatized by Thatcher um, and uh, they uh, could be uh, sold and, 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 and reworked into uh, upscale individual apartments, uh, you know, re renovate the interiors and everything, then brutalism became very chic, <laughs> Yeah. right? <laughs> Uh, oh. and, and suddenly it was a, it was you know oh we 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 all forgot about the beauty of brutalism and we we misunderstood its true inner greatness and all this kind of thing and and you know that is a major change in aesthetic evaluation just because the consumers changed you went from the poor owning the thing to the rich owning the thing it's the same thing but the valuation of it changes completely right yeah and like 
we're we're supposed to take these pricks seriously you know like such transparently <laughs> dumb ideas of like um the, the you know mindless class signaling um complete u-turns on these sorts of ideas and we're yeah. we're still supposed to trust that they fucking know what they're doing i don't know yeah I yeah yeah <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know one of the important things there is just not forget right mm-hmm Let's not forget what people used to think about these things. And let's not forget why the evaluation changed, <laughs> because that's often also the case that people yeah. say, oh, well, we, we just misunderstood. It's like, no, you didn't misunderstand. It's like you in the, in the first case, you were judging from your class position. And the second case, you were also judging from your <laughs> class position. But now they have money involved and yeah. uh, an investment in uh, in these things uh yeah so it's it's a fucking hollow argument um you heard it here folks folks uh, aesthetics are bullshit um <laughs> well it's not that aesthetics are bullshit it's that <laughs> aesthetics that are constructed on the basis of a very limited and prejudiced uh position namely like your wealth are bullshit because they're not universal right yeah, and that, that's, a, uh, that's that's a, the problem. That's a theme that'll be coming up in a lot of these uh, rebuttals of these kind of uh, propositions. That like a lot of these just aren't aren't universal, and therefore kind of don't work or can't work. Uh, they can only ever work to kind of like uh, satisfy the um, or to to kind of soothe and pacify uh, the sort of middle class and and, and above. Um, yeah. Like the fair trade thing is uh, another one that's often like, oh, well, can't can't you just get in, um, uh, you know, some sort of artisanal kale crop to uh, to address this? And like, no, not really. Um, or can't you, can't you do like you buy fair trade beans instead? It's like, well, it it, it doesn't scale. And that's the problem, right? And it's it, but the fair trade thing is also used as a sort of class differentiator thing. It's like, it's not it's you're they're not using the fair trade uh, crops as a replacement for the shitty exploitative ones. Uh, I mean, as, as shitty and ex- as exploitative as the fair trade stuff is anyway, they're using it as a niche product to sell to bougie assholes. That's right. So it's like on one level, it takes the critique of commodity fetishism into account in, as in like, oh, but like, aren't we forgetting about the conditions of production? But on the other hand, it doesn't take it into account right because it doesn't go far enough right um but it's yeah. this is a thing in in late capitalism though where it's able to subsume all of its sort of like the objections against it and all of the kind of movements against it and just kind of regurgitate them as a part of itself um like an ever replicating fungus um you know yeah 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 it, it, it internalizes the critique and turns it into a commodity Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So you have an you have an objectification of like the subject position of the person who <laughs> understands that you know there is a thing such as commodity fetishism, right? Yes. Meta objectification, <laughs> and then then that will get swallowed again, right? Like, and it'll be wrapped in another layer, uh, like a disgust, yeah. like a disgusting pearl, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. More and more layers of objectified. Um, accretions of uh, subject positions turned into objects and then objects turned into subject positions oh. yeah and they, were, they were just they were just talking about something like this on uh the show uh, thinking aloud on bbc the other uh, i think it was like last week um they were talking about how people uh how people uh represent themselves in job hunting and uh 
one of the things that has become very prevalent in job hunting over the last say 15 20 years is uh is the idea of branding and the personal brand right um and the person that they had on the show uh, made a really astute point which was that um Branding was originally a practice developed by the advertising industry in order to give a personality to an object, right? So brand branders would ask questions like, well, if Coca-Cola was a person, what kind of person do you think they would be, right? Um, and, and sort of trying to develop the the veneer of, of personality for each of these uh, products. But the thing is that this practice, which was used to impute personality to objects, is now being used to impute personality to people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we think about ourselves as objects, and then we try to either sort of introspect or to look out into the world at what's popular in order to develop a brand of ourselves, right? Um, yeah. And that's just kind of this commodity alienation taken to the nth degree, right? Yeah, yeah it really is. Um, and it's pretty grim. And sort of like, I think the personal branding stuff is a good way to segue into one of the other... Um, uh, the other examples is often kind of raised of like the kind of... Um, the Patreon kind of model of um, providing a non-alienated relationship between producers and consumers. Yeah, and, and I mean, Patreon, you know, uh, obviously this will be old news by the time this airs, but uh, they've just gone through this huge debacle about uh, changing their funding model. <laughs> and uh, I think the attraction for Patreon... and. Uh, uh, in the sort of fundamental way is um, that they offer a kind of model for mutual aid, right? In, in the sort of um, uh, libertarian socialist sense, right? Um, that that uh, individuals can support each other in a kind of very direct sense through Patreon. Um, and, it, and there is a kind of utopian promise to Patreon that the corporation um, exploits in their branding operations, right? Uh, and a lot of the anger that has come out as a result of this change in funding model is because people feel that that utopian promise has been betrayed, right? And um, mainly, like, the site of that is uh, people who are contributing, like, a dollar as like a kind of tip jar thing or people who are receiving donations in the form of like that level of uh, contribution. And there's not much money in that because there's transaction costs involved. And um, if Patreon eats the uh, transaction costs, then yeah, maybe they can make a little bit of money off of that, but they're not as profitable as they could be. I mean, that, that just that idea that they need to be more profitable in order to be attractive to investors goes directly into conflict with the premise of Patreon as a kind of platform for mutual aid. Yeah, definitely. And like, um, I kind of think that like 
the promise of Patreon could be better realized either as uh, as a utility or something that was run as a sort of workers co-op or, or something like that, because there, there isn't actually much. Um, and here, here we see some of the kind of weaknesses of capitalism that like, because it's driven by this profit motive and it kind of can't serve these needs where there isn't much, there's a definite need for the thing to exist, but there isn't much scope for a profit to be dr- drawn out of it. They end up uh, warping and distorting the product to fit the needs of venture capitalists more so than to fit the needs of the uh, creators and subscribers or whatever that um, uh, that kind of gave it legs in the first place. Um, and I, th- I think almost like, this, if the, but Patreon should really be just a feature of the banking system. You know, like it should be, if the if the bank, if banking was more high tech, this would be just a, a feature of a bank account. Like you could publish an address, an obfuscated address, like a kind of a, like a Bitcoin address, you know what I mean? And that people would just be able to look, like click on it and like hook their bank up to it and do that kind of thing. Like it's, it, pa- mm-hmm. Patreon sort of inserts itself as a mediating layer in between this this thing, but they're, they've then found that there isn't actually that much money to be made by doing that. And so... Yeah, because they provide an administrative service, but it's... It's purely it's administrative. It's not an enormously profitable one. <laughs> um, but in general, though, like, it, it can't... It can't be applied to the entire division of labor, and, like... So it's not really a model for um, anything beyond the sort of creative... Um, creative industries that it's um, currently used for. Well, and even within those industries, we see that it produces enormously unequal outcomes, right? That that there is a tiny, tiny minority of Patreon um, users who are actually able to earn a decent living off of their uh, revenue. Yeah, it's a classic power distribution where, um, yeah, you have an absolute handful like... um, definitely sub one percent of the uh creators on there are earning what you would call a living wage uh, or a, a, at least above a, a sort of a decent sort of wage and then there's that gigantic tail of um people who, who just aren't aren't making a living off of it like it's it's gonna it's weird to hold this up as a model for people being able to make a living off of their work when in actual fact almost no one is um is that that enormous tale of uh like lgbt youths like making furry fan art and stuff like that um and getting a handful of dollars a month that's not a it's not a living you know it's yeah it's not a model for how you would have a unalienated relation between producer and consumer really (laughs) right yeah exactly because you know a lot of the people who are contributing to those um people's work which is you know, obviously of varying quality, but, you know, some of it's very high quality. And uh, they're often people who are in just as bad a financial situation as the people they're contributing to, right? So I, I did see that as a little joke um, on Twitter. It was like, um, kind of like, uh, it's, it's, it's like it basically getting on along the lines that there is a circular relationship there that like, um the sort of uh marginalized artists all supporting each other in a big circle like like the classic story of a penny going around a village you know (laughs) exactly it's 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 one of the main problems with mutual aid as a as a strategy right that like yes it's good but if 
all the capital is held by a tiny minority who have nothing to do with your mutual aid scheme, it is just kind of spreading the meager wealth around within an impoverished community. So any, anyway, I mean, I, I think that that kind of gets at that issue. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that I, I've always kind of had ambivalent feelings about because um, I remember when Kickstarter first started up, um, I was very excited about it in a way because um, it was something that I, I had thought about a lot in the past as like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this under socialism? Um, like, you know, what if we could fund uh, artistic production in a kind of um, voluntary way instead of having it all being done through state uh, funding organizations? Wouldn't that be nice? Um, and then we, you know, Kickstarter happened and it was a huge thing. And obviously I knew from the beginning that it would be like, well, there's obviously going to be caveats on how effective this is going to be because it is a capitalist organization. And it has created some good stuff, but I feel like it has also, people have soured on it a lot um, because of sort of the fundamental alienation that is implied in in the in the, the market relations it has. Mm, yeah. And, and, and Patreon sort of feels like that again right <laughs> yeah and it's it's like the key point there is that it, it is all still just market relations right like it's still that that core problem of like producing something not producing something and then taking it to like putting it in an abstract form and then taking it to the market to be traded in this kind of way that strips the object and yourself of humanity as um that's the thing we kind of need to get rid of right like having having more sophisticated markets isn't gonna alleviate those actual problems. Yeah. So yeah. So I think we've talked about you know fair trade, Patreon. Uh, another point that comes up often is is open source as a kind of model for um, sort of alternative non alienated work. Right. Um, people again, sort of on the basis of mutual aid, people working together voluntarily to produce something. Um, never mind that the vast majority of open source work is done on company payroll. Um, <laughs> Either that or it's not compensated at all. Yeah, it's it's one of the two, right? That you're doing it on company time and there's a kind of producer cooperative among large tech, tech companies to uh, provide uh, code to each other. Um, which is, you know, secondarily shared with everybody else, but they're not the primary consumers. And then there are the 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 coders who are doing open source work as portfolio building, uh, going into the industry, and so they're kind of being exploited in in providing that that code to the to the um, open source uh, repositories. Um, they're just doing it at, in order to get visibility. Um, to, to pad out their resumes um, and what you know and there's a problem there because oftentimes these projects will be left by the wayside uh, when they do get paying work and then finally you have the product projects that are neither portfolio building nor uh, corporate sponsored uh, but instead are projects that are um, ongoing personal work right passion projects and yeah, oftentimes the people who are producing these things are living in desperate poverty. Yeah, like a good examples would be like OpenSSL, I think Vim, 
um, a couple of other things like that. And like, I think for, I think, I think it's open SSL I'm thinking of where like it took a huge crisis, like I think it was the Heartbleed vulnerability to finally bring people's attention to the fact that it was one guy who I don't think was working otherwise, but like definitely wasn't in a position to be um, constantly kind of doing this thing. Um, and only then did any kind of uh, funding start to flow into the project at all. Um, which I think like, I think that a lot of, like I, I, I do open source stuff. I'm kind of like generally generally very positive about it but like i think there's a real utopian kind of like or just a very naive kind of conception of what it is from a lot of um open source adherence you know where it's like yeah there's there's not a lot of um understanding of the political economy of open source Um, and that's i think we're gonna have to do an episode on that maybe get some guests in to um to talk about that kind of stuff yeah because you know in, in at some level it is inspiring I think it is a model for the future in a way, but like it, we would we would have to get to a point before being able to really kind of look look into judgments on it. We'd have to get to a point where like anyone is being compensated for their labor in open source at all. Like people outside of Red Hat making making money off of it would be a prerequisite for even beginning to pass judgment on whether it's a viable model. You know? Yeah, and I mean, I I, I think that uh, the response to Heartbleed is very telling right that there was this kind of ad hoc like pseudo socialist effort thrown together by these large tech companies is like oh my god we need to do something to prop up these people that we've been exploiting for however many years yeah um, in order to make sure that there's some security to our our systems right uh but like Obviously, that is a very uh, problematic response compared to what could be provided in a society where everyone uh, was able to live without want. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, because, like, in, in that kind of a society, uh, you know, open SSL guy would be able to just crack on with that work and not not have to worry about um, how to keep the electricity flowing into the house. Um, yeah, because no one's going to accuse him of... Uh, <laughs> doing it for the money you know (laughs) obviously it's a labor of love Uh, yeah wouldn't have to worry about uh, grifters in that situation yeah that's a good way to conceptualize of um a socialist society though like that it would enable much more in the way of labors of love and kind of like exploratory work to be done um yeah and and that's kind of an ideal in terms of non-alienated labor right right. that's what you get when you have like access to the means of production like when when the means of production aren't being actively held away from you you can kind of say um because i don't know like i think an example might be if if i wanted to do some research into like machine learning or ai stuff i had like a crazy harebrained idea that might work out um i would have to find a way of getting a shit ton of gpus which might involve pretty in the best case um or the most feasible case would involve hefty um AWS builds um, and it's like frankly kind of beyond my means you know that's whereas like imagine a socialist kind of future in which uh, a, a programmer with a similar kind of thing of like hey, I have this idea that it's, it's just crazy enough that it might work you know I need to, I need to have a go at it but it does need substantial compute resources would be able to just kind of apply for the the compute time and um, and have it doled out um, yeah, without having the entanglements that are implied in going and getting venture capital. Funding, yeah, right? exactly right. Um, um, so that's a huge, huge barrier. Um, 
I mean, sort of technology is an interesting kind of field in that, like, in some ways, uh, anyone with a laptop and a copy of Ubuntu can kind of get get something off the ground. But then, that's not true. That's again, that's another thing that doesn't scale, right? Like, not everything's a web app. You know, it's um, yeah. That's not. It's not, not really a model for everything. Not uh, Pomodoro uh, counter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and like so that's so the kind of the model for that kind of future would be that like with with this kind of invisible hand removed um, removed from humanity's throat, um, we would kind of be able to abandon these kind of um, the bad faith practices of um, capitalist life and all this dis- disavowal of the actual effects of production, uh, disavowal of our actual relations to people and. Um, and actually kind of face yeah, that, each other. That does get back to our discussion in uh, Blade Runner, right? Yeah, right. The disavowal. Um, that was a that was a huge theme in that movie. Um, but without that, like people would be able to kind of face each other as equals um, without the mediating layers and actually be able to um, deal, with, deal with each other honestly. Yeah, exactly. So that can be very challenging. Um, that can be quite unpleasant in some ways uh, because there are conflicting interests uh, between people and conflict conflicting points of view and conflicting values. Um, but it's kind of a question of whether your solution to that problem is to establish a social hierarchy that gives some people the ability to impose their values on others or whether it is um, a matter of trying to you know uh, work through those disagreements in the best uh, possible faith right in the the most equal possible position like what Habermas called like the ideal speech situation right is you can that if, if there were no extraneous issues and, and there are problems with Habermas's formulation because you don't solve every kind of problem with talk right you know there's there's other sorts of avenues to getting people to understand uh understand your point of view that aren't about talk and that is kind of a very bourgeois understanding of how disputes should be resolved yeah yeah you see that a lot in the um the emphasis on i suppose what you would call the kind of like respectability politics of the kind of liberal crowd like the democrats um where ev- everything is um you know we just we just need to need, need to reach an olive branch across the aisle and sit, sit down and just just hash things out you know um yeah exactly like that very like um you know uh gentleman's club and smoking jackets view of how problems need to be resolved uh is is really a, a a small portion of of the way that people actually relate to each other um so i don't i don't want to over overemphasize that point but it is a matter of saying like you know how can we work through these questions um as equals instead of saying you know for example that um i get to decide what is beautiful because i'm rich and i get to i get to patronize artists or i get to buy fancy things um, but it, you know, it's also a matter of how do we structure labor in the society? Do women do emotional labor just because they're women and it's expected of them? Uh, or do we actually have to think about how we divide up the labor amongst each other in a, in an honest way 
instead of just sort of saying, well, you know, women like to do care work, and so we'll just let the women do that. And, you know, there's these norms that are established that simplify the question for the people who are on the winning side of that equation. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a good example. Uh, it's a very good example of a, a bad faith characteristic of our, our contemporary society. Um, yeah, I think it does serve as a very good example of the uh, the kind of uh, the, the tenor of the um, the problems ahead <laughs> while we uh, deconstruct this. Um, yeah, this sort and, of thing. and you know this this whole Me Too uh, debate and uh, and and phenomenon that's come about uh, this year, where this sort of extent of patriarchal violence that exists in the society has been revealed in a way that it hasn't been before um you know that has been very unsettling uh you know even to myself it's very very unsettling deeply made me um sort of question what it means to be a man uh and that is the kind of thing that you would expect to happen in many areas of life in a society where people had a more equal basis to uh, deal with each other. Yeah. And the, the sort of the more, the more equal basis of dealing with each other as well as um, kind of brings us on to another uh, point in the notes that like um, with the, the socialist world, we're kind of envisioning that we, we really want everyone to have uh, equal access to justice, which is like yes. categorically not the case currently. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 so obvious that even people who are very right wing in their views will admit the point that how rich you are determines the quality of legal representation you will get and therefore your access to justice. Yeah, and right. it's it's this big um it's it's kind of one of the big lies of the kind of the bourgeois state, right, that like everyone's equal under the law, yada yada yada. And it's just it's just not the case. Like, and I think everyone knows this, that like justice is bought and sold. It's um, your ability to survive or even come out uh, victorious in any kind of legal battle is largely determined by your ability to pay for counsel. Um, and even in um, places which have uh, access to free legal counsel, a lot of those are, they're, they're fucking terrible. I mean, like, I mean, the, the, the representatives are doing yeoman's work there, like trying their best, but it's not, it's not good representation in most cases. They're and often it's, it's, overworked, right? They're overworked or it's being defunded and taken away, you know? Um, even that isn't a defense against, um, the, uh, the kind of fundamental inequality that like the fundamental fact that like a dollar isn't just a thing to buy um, a commodity with it's also power right and people who have more dollars have more power and people who have less dollars have less power and that is just a fundamental problem in this system that ensures that a vast uh, mass of people don't have real meaningful access to the state or to the justice system yeah, that's right so you know we are alienated from this social decision making in our society and by extension we're also alienated from access to justice and that is like the thing that hegel was wrestling with when we go back to that discussion right that that this isn't really a rational society because there is a you know for him i don't know how much this was evident to him but for us we can see that for the vast majority of people 
we are alienated from um from from justice and from uh being able to have a say in the direction of of a society and that's been completely obvious in uh this tax reform issue that's come up in the u.s and you know like i'm not american i don't live in the united states but obviously as the richest country in the world the decisions that are made there are going to affect everybody yeah uh, and the entire um, world right as well as like i mean it's yeah it affects everyone in the world because like it's the the sort of leader of this kind of uh, western sort of market um globalized market economy but it's also that like i think this is an interesting thing that i think a lot of a lot of non-americans including myself and, and yourself are like very deeply invested in how things turn out in america um at least partially because like i think it'll set the tone for the next century right like i think socialism is probably most possible to kick off in america because it's not possible for the CIA to go and bomb America, <laughs> you know. It's like if it's if it's going if this project is going to take root anywhere properly, it's probably going to be there, you know. Um, or even just like if if this if this stuff keeps getting worse, right? Like the um, the rightward swing keeps going, then like that's going to set the tone for politics everywhere, you know. We do live in a in a, a networked world where. Um, we're all sort of invested in how everything turns out for each other. I mean, I mean, even to kind of go the other way in causality, I think the the Brexit results over here in in, in the UK uh, kind of informed the um, the election in the United States a little bit later in twenty sixteen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was a connection that uh, Bannon and Trump tried to uh, emphasize uh, when they brought uh, what was that guy? A horrible individual. Oh, Farage. Now. Yeah. yeah, that's the one. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, a motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're all we're all sort of deeply invested in uh, how everything turns out in all of our mutual countries. <laughs> yeah, I think actually when that visit happened, there was a photo taken of him and Trump in Trump's uh, Trump Tower suite. You know, of the like golden <laughs> everything. Yeah. And I was just like, you know, this is a vision of hell or something like that. <laughs> these, these two right-wing imbeciles in their golden room. This gaudy, um, awful fucking room that only, yeah. only they would think would be nice. Like, look at all this gold. It's like, ugh. No, so that that kind of, I think it loops around to something we were talking about in the before we started recording. But um, when when we sort of want to redistribute wealth, right, It's it's not just about looking at somebody who's got three yachts and saying, oh, I want a yacht too. I don't want the fucking yachts. I want the same say in how my society plays out that that fucker yes. does, you know? Yeah, that's that's right. It's that's the, the power more important issue. Money's, money and yachts and golden uh, fucking uh, bar stools are not of any interest to most people. Yeah, and in, in fact, in a society of um, greater equality, uh, you would see a lot less of that because those things exist as markers of classics, class distinction, right? Um, and uh, so there's much less need for for yachts when you're not competing with the guy next to you mm. who has five. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it'll be it'll be a nice future. I think I'm, I'm looking forward to it if if we can pull it off. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we're in a very bleak place this year. It's um, 
I mean, this this episode will be airing in the following year, so who knows what that will bring. But uh, just looking back over 2017, it is if you if you kind of form a list of all the things that happened, it it's kind of mind boggling. But I think it there is some value to both sort of assessing the fundamental problems of the system we're living in uh in a kind of abstract way like we've done here and also trying to think about what some solutions to those problems might look like even if it seems like we're so mired in the muck of just surviving right now that uh looking at these kind of things is is kind of pie in the sky yeah and i think that's that's kind of broadly what this whole show is about right that like i think we we sort of acknowledge that um the left is sort of a little bit behind on its own work in kind of really actively looking at um, the the circumstances we're in right now and how how all of our idea how all of our ideas will actually apply to them and how we can kind of t- take lessons from history take some looks at uh, socialist theory and then apply them to the current context that we're actually in with an eye towards building a actual future that's worth living in yeah yeah so yeah um, hopefully we've succeeded in uh, at least helping along the way (laughs) yes i I think we've covered quite a few uh of the little sort of sub areas of this topic and for those of you who are sort of screaming at the at the podcast that you know alienation is a hegelian concept and doesn't belong in marx and all this kind of thing well i'm aware of those critiques like (laughs) i know there was that whole debate uh (laughs) but uh it's not really the business of this uh of this show to get into the minutiae of um the sort of history of marxist debates uh it's not really what we're interested in doing here and uh there will be a podcast for that i'm sure (laughs) yeah i think like we're we're broadly not that interested in sort of um rehashing the classic sort of debates uh that socialists have been um prone to um we're generally opposed to kind of left sectarianism we're kind of much more into uh, like sober assessments of like a, a big tent sort of thing where we'll have sober assessments of all sorts of different ideas and then try to work out where to go from here um, rather than rehashing the kind of arguments of the past. So, um, uh, yeah, don't, don't at us about any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think this has been a pretty fantastic episode. Um, we are on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook uh, at General Intellect Unit. We have a website, generalintellectunit.net, and we're on, I think, pretty much all of the podcasting apps by now. So if you haven't already, uh, subscribe. Uh, if there's a facility to do so, uh, leave a rating or a review or something. Or just, you know, pass it along to your friends or anyone you think who might appreciate this um, uh, this kind of content. Um, I think in two weeks we'll be back with. Um, I think we're talking about Red Plenty next. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That is the plan. It's going to be good. Uh, I'm enjoying it so far. It's a. Uh, it's a remarkably easy read. It's a. Uh, it's quite a breezy <laughs> book. Um, yeah, an opportunity for people to jump in and and give it a shot. Yeah, you can you can get ahead of that. Um, definitely. Um, do we know what we're doing afterwards? Um, well, I think we'll we'll save that. Uh... 
Yeah. Because it'll it'll be a ways out from the time of our recording, so, so I we're... like to retain some editorial control on that one. Yeah, what fucking day is it? It's oh it's it's uh, the tenth of December today. Um yeah, we're we're basically taking the rest of December off, but um we're gonna figure out what to do after Red Plenty. Um Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.